Wow, thanks, Vince. Uh, good morning, Redemption. Uh, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, yeah, so me and my family, we just moved in July uh, from Oregon, where I've kind of born and raised 40 years, to Phoenix area, Tempe specifically. Uh, in July 1st, kind of rolled into town 118 degrees, so that was new. And, <laughs> and it was nice uh, this morning waking up here in Flagstaff and seeing trees and green and rain again. It's uh, really good to be with you guys, but have loved it, uh, being part of the Redemption family, and really grateful for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Uh, we want to look today at anger, and particularly, how do we deal with anger? Uh, I don't know about you, but it seems like we are becoming more and more angry these days. Uh, I was reading an interesting story this week about an ambulance, and this ambulance was kind of uh, parked and, and involved saving someone's life, and then came out and found this note on their van. It said, uh, you may be saving lives, but don't park your van in a stupid place and block my drive. And I just kind of saw that and was like, what the heck? Like, who leaves a note like this on an ambulance van, right? Like, they are in the middle of seeking to save someone's life who needs medical attention, who is in uh, physical uh, danger, and someone's concerned that they can't get their car out of the way for 30 minutes, right? And part of the story, it was interesting, was that there has been an increase in these things. This was uh, an ambulance company in England, and they said actually in uh, one year, uh, they've now had 413 uh, reports of physical violence towards ambulance employees and workers, EMTs and medics. And this just seems like one small window into an escalation of anger in our society. Uh, if you disagree with me, you can go take a look at my Facebook feed, right? <laughs> Uh, it seems like we are becoming more and more angry, and anger is not always a bad thing. Um, it, it can be a natural and even a good response. We'll look today at, at things in our world. I want to look today at like how do we deal with our anger? Uh, what kind of preparation can we take uh, to get ready for when those moments come? And the uh, image, uh, we can go back to kind of the main slide if you want to remember that. Uh, the image I would use for uh, this is uh, how do we stretch out? Right? How do we kind of do some stretching this morning to prepare ourselves for how we would use our anger when the time comes? Uh, you think of the Super Bowl uh, players right now, they're stretching it out, right? Like they're stretching out and getting ready so that when the moment comes, how can they kind of use that raw energy and power and uh, even anger they might have in the moment to, 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 to do it right? And there are proper channels to use it, and there are improper channels where they might get a penalty, Right? And some of us today, uh, we're going to be stretching it out, and maybe another way, right? Like stretching out the belt size, uh, <laughs> might need to get the sweatpants on, you know. Uh, <laughs> and we also may, today may need to know how to deal with our anger. Like Vince is going to need to learn, learn how to deal with his anger when the Rams lose today. So, <laughs> so th this sermon is particularly uh, devoted to, uh, to Vince today for, for that moment. <laughs> okay, but how do we deal with our anger? And we want to look today at a scene where Jesus gets angry. And want to ask, why does Jesus get angry? And what does he do with that anger? We're in a series called Love Walked Among Us. We're trying to slow down in the Gospels and not just see what Jesus does, but see how he does it and observe the characters in the story and what, what perspective do they have and bring as they encounter Jesus and what the perspective do we see in who Jesus is and how he interacts with them. And so uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Stretch It Out. If you would be so bold as to raise your, uh, kind of extend your right arm and place it on the shoulder of the person next to you and tell them, stretch it out. 
Stretch it out. <laughs> All right, we're going to do some stretching today in preparing how to deal with our anger, getting ready for that moment. Okay, so uh, we start in Mark 3, verses 1 to 3, where it says, Again, he entered the synagogue, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Okay, well, let's start there. Uh, the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is not afraid of the fight. Right? He is not afraid of the fight. And here's what I mean. If we look at the three characters, the kind of the three main characters in this scene, uh, there is a tension point in the room that Jesus doesn't avoid. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He actually calls it out and brings it front and center. So we think of the three characters. Let's start with the man with the withered hand. Right? We see a picture of someone where his, the sign of his strength has become a sign of death. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, the hand, and particularly the right hand in the Hebrew kind of Jewish worldview, you go back to the Old Testament, and the hand, particularly the right hand, was symbolic. And Luke tells us this was actually his right hand. Uh, and it was symbolic of your strength. You think about uh, working and being able to, uh, you know, maybe dig up the dirt or whatever kind of things you, you would do. Uh, it was a sign of your strength. It was often used as a sign of God's strength when God would work with his mighty right hand to rescue and deliver his people. And so this man uh, probably was unable to find work or to be employed, maybe felt like he didn't have much to contribute to uh, his community, his society. And this sign of his strength, his hand, was withered. And that's an interesting word. It's shriveled in some translations or withered. It's the same word that Jesus uses a little while later in the parable of the soils, where uh, some of the uh, crops that sprung up, but they were planted on rocks, and when the sun came out, it shriveled, it withered. And it's a word, often an agricultural word, that's used for like a, a plant whose day has come and now it shrivels down. And so this man who is still alive... It's a picture, though, that this uh, significant part of his body has now become withered, shriveled. Like, more than just it doesn't work, but it's on a downward trajectory. And the reality is all of us have parts of our lives that are on a downward trajectory. It's just, he's got this sign, visible sign of death that he carries around. And likewise, he was probably on the outside looking in. Uh, this would have prevented him in that day from being able to enter the inner courts of the temple. And maybe in many ways, uh, he often felt like he was on the outside looking in to this world that others were at the center of. And have you ever felt on the outside looking in? It could be maybe you're a student here at Flagstaff High and it's in the lunchroom where there's all the, the cool kids, the people hanging out at the table and you kind of eating your lunch all alone, watching from a distance. Or maybe, like me, you're like me where sometimes it's on Instagram where you kind of see everyone's got their polished and perfect looking and pretty life and you feel like, man, my life is a mess compared to that, 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 that projection, that image that they're putting out there. We can often feel like we're on the outside looking in. I think we can identify with this man. Have you ever had an area of your life where you feel like you're carrying around a sign of death? Something that was made to be whole, but it feels shriveled and withered. Maybe it's that diagnosis that just isn't going away. 
or the spouse that you've lost. And you have that pain you carry around with you and everyone who knows your situation, they see you and maybe it makes some people uncomfortable and so they avoid you and you can feel like you're on the outside looking in, carrying around the sign of death. I think we can empathize with this man and who he is. The beauty of the gospel, though, is that you are not defined by your disability. You are not defined by your weakness. I love how it doesn't say the withered hand man, Right? But it says the man with the withered hand. He is not the withered hand, dude, right? He is a man, first and foremost. He is a person. He is someone created with dignity in God's image. And he's created good by God, and yet he has this condition that he carries around with him. And now he's about to encounter Christ. And like him, you and I, we all have our weak spots. And sometimes we want to approach Jesus with our trophies and our accomplishments and all the best things we got to the bring, but Jesus actually calls us to him and encounters us in our scars, in our wounds, in our weakness, and invites us to bring those places to him. Okay, well, that's the man. Uh, next, we see the Pharisees, or the leaders, right? And uh, the leaders are using this man for their own agenda, it says that some were looking for a reason to accuse him. They're trying to trap Jesus. And how messed up is that, right? Like they're using this dude's disability to try and get to Jesus and trap him. He is a pawn in their game, right? He is a pawn. He's like a prop in this thing they're trying to do. Man, like he may have a bad hand, but they have a bad heart. Right? And which one of those is worse? We're about to find out. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> the irony is they actually want Jesus to heal. They want this man to get healed, but not for the sake of his healing, but so that they have an excuse, something to entrap Jesus with. And I think sometimes we can be like the Pharisees today as well. Like we can champion the needy, but really for kind of our own self-interest, right? Right? Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I see, like, the folks who are the, the most vocal and loud about justice stuff say online, like, justice is crucial, it's central to the heart of God, but sometimes the folks who are most vocal about it say online, you can get the feeling like they're just kind of using the needy to try and build a platform for their own recognition. Or sometimes uh, we go overseas with kind of a hero complex thinking like, man, uh, yeah, we're going to go uh, you know, help, help the poor, but we have this kind of savior mentality of like, dude, we're actually exalting ourselves using them to say, look how great I am. Look what I'm doing. Like those Pharisees, sometimes we can use poor, but really for our own agenda to exalt ourselves before Jesus. Now in the midst of this, one of the things I love is that Jesus is not afraid of the fight. Jesus says to the man, hey, stand up, come here in front of everyone. Jesus doesn't avoid the conflict that's in the room. I love how Jesus, he's not like, uh, hey, uh, come back to me Monday, all right? These guys don't really want me to heal today, and I don't want to cause a fuss or commotion, so make an appointment, we'll, we'll get back together later this week, right? And Jesus is not like, well, okay, hey, meet me out back after, right? We'll just kind of do this in private and see. I want to heal you, but I don't want to cause a stir. No, like Jesus recognizes there's a conflict in the room, and he calls it out front and center when he says to the man, come here. Literally says, arise into the midst. Come, come here. And the reason I believe Jesus calls this thing out front and center is because Jesus is not a peacekeeper. 
He's a peacemaker. Right? Like Jesus is not a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker. You and I, often we are uh, more interested in keeping the peace than making true peace. And the reality is sometimes, uh, you know, keeping the peace, we just want to uh, avoid the conflict, and so we appease people. We pretend there's no problem in the room. Uh, but the reality is if you're actually going to make peace, it often means there's some stuff that needs to get stirred up and brought to the surface so it can be dealt with. I love how Paul Miller says uh, in, in the book, Love Walked Among Us, that we're, uh, has been kind of an inspiration for the series. Paul Miller says, um, Jesus is a false peace breaker and a true peacemaker. Jesus, we're going to see in a minute, he gets, he gets angry at some of what's going on in this scene, but he uses his anger and it motivates him to actually call out the conflict and address it rather than to avoid it and pretend it's not there. All right, well, uh, what was this conflict about? It was about the nature of the Sabbath. And what we see next is that Jesus says the Sabbath was always about salvation. Right? So this conflict is over the Sabbath. And uh, the leaders, they ask him, or then Jesus says to them in response, he says, well, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Jesus says the Sabbath is actually about saving life and doing good. In Matthew's gospel, it's interesting, Jesus expands on this. He gives an illustration of a sheep. He's like, let's say you got your sheep and it falls in a pit or a well or whatever uh, on the Sabbath. Well, of course, you're going to pick it up and take it out. And that was allowed uh, under Sabbath laws and all or, or Sabbath protocols. Uh, so you're going to pick up this sheep and take it out. Well, what's more valuable? Like the sheep? This guy's life. Right? And this was a rabbinic way of arguing, a kind of moving from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus goes, hey, if it's okay to pull your sheep out, but not to pull this man out, what are you guys thinking, right? And I think in this response, Jesus is having patience with and compassion for the Pharisees. He's actually taking the time to sit down and explain to them where he's coming from, what the Sabbath is actually all about, and give them a chance to respond. And again, that's different from you and I. I think we tend to write off those that we're angry at. We tend to distance ourselves from them, to avoid them and ignore them. But Jesus actually moves toward them. He doesn't allow his anger to distance himself from them. He moves towards them and explains and creates space for them to respond. And what was the Sabbath about? Well, when Jesus says this, he's actually tapping into, uh, he's not violating or contradicting the Old Testament. He's actually tapping into the depths of the Old Testament. So the Sabbath, uh, many of us know it was, you know, God created in six days and then on the seventh day he rested. And so similarly, like the work week was, was to be one where we uh, worked for six days and then on the seventh day we rest. Um, a lot of us in America, we like to invert this and we like to rest for six days and then maybe on one day we'll work. Um, but I don't know, I come from Portlandia, where, you know, the, famously the place where 30-somethings go to retire, and that's sort of our mantra. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus is not saying work is, is bad. Work is good. There's these six days for work, uh, but then there's one day for rest. And sometimes I think we, you know, we th hear that word rest, we think like, okay, it's a day where I just take a nap all day. And no, uh, actually the literal meaning of the word is more seizing. And it means seizing, uh, doing stuff, not so you just sit with your hands folded behind your back, but so that you take time to enjoy and celebrate that which you've worked for. 
It's shutting down the computer and getting together with the family and friends and throwing the feast and kicking back and celebrating the good life that God has given. It's taking time to celebrate life with God, with others, with family, with friends, with community. Right? Okay, well, <clears throat> the Pharisees, though, uh, so there was this command God gave, which is a good one. Jesus says in Mark 2, right before this, he says, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Uh, that God's actually given the Sabbath as a gift to rest and to celebrate and all. Uh, but the Pharisees had kind of taken that one command and they had stretched it out, right? They had created all these other rules and things and protocols to try and protect from, you know, it became like an anxiety, fear-inducing, don't step over the line, don't mess it up or God's going to get really angry. Like they inverted and misunderstood the very meaning of the Sabbath to begin with. And why was healing a problem on the Sabbath? Well, that's kind of a new problem to have, right? Like how many people do you know walking around healing folks, you know? Like, this probably wasn't something they'd really had to deal with much in the past. But now, Jesus is bringing God's new creation, restoring resurrection power. He's healing. He's bringing new life. And they're going, well, what do we do with this? Well, okay, maybe you can do that work on six days, but is that, is that work? Is that even working? And <clears throat> the word melaka in the Old Testament for work, um, it shows up, it's the same word in the you know, Sabbath commandment. It shows up in Genesis 1 and 2 when God's creating, and then it shows up in the construction of the tabernacle, which was like this, supposed to be this new Eden, new creation. And in both of those, it has the sense not just of working, but of creating, of bringing things into the world. There's a sense now that Jesus, like, dude, you're creating. God took a break on the Sabbath. You should too, you know? It's kind of the sense. But Jesus says the Sabbath is not only about creation, it's also about salvation. If we, if we read in Deuteronomy 5, let's pull this up. This is uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, the command where God is talking about the Sabbath and the reason and purpose behind it. And God says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was not only modeled on creation, it was a commemoration of salvation. Right? And it's interesting here, notice that uh, it's a sign of God's deliverance. Remember God's deliverance where he brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Put a little post-it note on that. We'll come back to it later, right? Uh, but there's, it's, it's interesting. God used his mighty hand, his outstretched arm to deliver his people and to bring them out of captivity into freedom. But the Sabbath is supposed to be a commemoration and celebration of this work that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has done for his people. So Jesus is not saying, hey, the Sabbath ain't a big deal. Don't be so uptight. He's actually saying, let's go deeper into Sabbath and its true roots and purpose and what it really means. And we see that Sabbath is a signpost of salvation. All right. Well, one of the things I love in this scene, too, is that Jesus places a gap between uh, the get up and the healing, right? Between when he calls the man to get up and when he actually heals him. Uh, that word where Jesus says, hey, guy, come here. Uh, in the ESV we're using, it says, come here. In the NIV it says, stand up. It's a resurrection word. It literally means arise into the midst. So Jesus, before he heals this guy, he calls out to him and says, hey, you, arise into the midst, 
And this is the same word, it's a healing word that Jesus uses throughout Mark's gospel. It's the same word when he calls the paralyzed man to get up from the mat, arise from your mat into the midst. It's the same word he uses for Jairus' dead daughter when he brings her back to life, arise into the midst. Same easy words uses for uh, the boy with the demon in Mark 9, for blind Bartimaeus when he restores his sight in Mark 10. And it's the same word he uses for his own resurrection when he says, I'll die, I'll go into the grave, and after three days I will arise into the midst. And in Mark 16, when Jesus has been risen and the gospel proclamation go out, they say, he has risen. He has arisen into the midst. So when Jesus says, come here, he's not just saying, hey, come stand by me. He's actually calling him out with resurrection power, arise into the midst. And it's interesting, he speaks this word, this resurrection word into the man's life before the actual healing. As this man steps up, I think one of the things Jesus is doing that I love about this is he's giving the Pharisees a chance to respond. He's actually calling and setting up a moment where in this middle space where he teaches about the very purpose and the heartbeat of God, he gives them a space to respond before the fullness of the healing actually comes. And I want to ask, how do you and I, how do we believe and behave in the middle space? How do you and I act in the middle space between the resurrection word that Christ has spoken into our lives and the fulfillment of it that's coming in the fullness of God's kingdom. Right? Because the reality is often for you and I, man, maybe you've tasted the power and the presence of God's spirit, his love for you, and yet the cancer is still eating away at your body. Maybe you have experienced the, the love of Jesus and the affection for him, and you, you've experienced transformation and new life, and yet it still hurts that your spouse walked away or your kids won't talk to you. We live in many ways in, in the, the now, between the now and the not yet of the kingdom, in this middle space where Christ has spoken this resurrection word into our lives, and we've experienced transformation in his power and the reality of his presence with us and for us. And yet we still live before the not yet. There's the not yet where we await the fullness of that resurrection power in the coming of his kingdom. And like those Pharisees, I believe we're, we're confronted with how do we behave? What, what do we believe in this middle space? Do we actually step forward into and press into and arise towards and with faith and trust in Christ, the one who calls us, step forward into that which he calls out in us in belief and trust? All right, well, Jesus goes on um, in verse uh, 4b to 5. Oh, it says, but they were silent. They were silent. Not a peep in the room. And he looked around at them. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. All right, well, I want to look here at how to get angry like Jesus, right? How can you and I get angry like Jesus? 
Because Jesus gets angry here. Kind of first thing, he gets angry and he shows his anger. It says he looked around them in anger. He didn't try and hide it. He looked around them in anger. So this is not kind of cute little flannel graph Jesus. Like this is fiery prophet out to deal with stuff, right, Jesus. And the reality is we don't like angry Jesus. We like cute little, hey, reinforce everything I already believe, Jesus. We like, tell me I'm your perfect little, you know, I'm in the center of the universe, Jesus. We don't like, call me out on my BS, Jesus, right? And that's what we get here. We get a Jesus who gets angry and he looks around at them in anger. Why does Jesus get angry? I want to look at three observations on Jesus' anger here that I think can help us see what does Christ-centered anger look like, right? Okay, observation, uh, well, just to start, uh, he gets angry at their silence, right? And their silence reveals something. Their silence at his teaching, it reveals that they see this man as less valuable than a sheep. He gets angry about that. He gets angry that maybe for others, they don't think he's less valuable, but they're cowards before kind of the system of injustice and oppression that would treat a man like this. He gets angry that they are practicing the Sabbath in one way, and yet they have missed the heartbeat of God. They have missed the heart of God. So Jesus gets angry at this. And so three observations here on Jesus' anger. Uh, First, that it is others-centered. It's others-centered. Jesus gets angry when he sees others mistreated. And this is kind of different from how uh, you and I tend to get angry, right? Like Jesus uh, doesn't get angry when he's mistreated, not himself. Um, he lets that go really easily. There's another quote by Paul Miller, Loved Walked Among Us. He says, uh, Remarkably, Jesus never gets angry when people hurt him, the very point where we might blow our stacks. Yet, he gets upset with injustice and hypocrisy in others when compassion is blocked. His anger is centered on others' welfare. He gets angry at what prevents a love of others and a love of God. These are the moments where we see Christ get indignant and upset. And that's significant. Sometimes I think we, we think of um, God's anger and you know, God's love as being kind of these two separate you know, polarities. Sometimes God wakes up on the good side of the bed and he's loving. Sometimes he wakes up on the bad side of the bed and, and you're like, all right, look out, right? You don't know which one you're going to get. But what we see here is that Even in his anger, it's driven by love. Jesus' anger is driven by love for others. There's a quote I love by a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, who says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being in love. God is wrathful because God is love. In the bigger context of this quote, uh, he's reflecting. So he's from Croatia, and he's reflecting on the war in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, that was reached genocidal proportions. Or the, and, and he begins from there to reflect on other genocides in the world, say Rwanda, where nearly a million people were hacked to death in, in about a month. Right? And he goes, in the face of such carnage, a God who is not angry would not be loving. In the midst of the, those are extreme examples, but we can boil it all the way down to the more intimate things that you and I do to one another, that a God who is not uh, angry or upset, a God who does not stand against the wrong that we do to each other and the cruelty that is in our world, that would not truly be loving. God doesn't get angry in spite of his love. 
It's because of his love. It's because of his care and concern for the world. Paul Miller again remarks, when we see someone suffer, we should feel compassion. When we see someone make another suffer, we should feel anger. There's an appropriateness to anger when it's driven by other-centered love. All right, a second observation on Jesus' anger is that it is grief-driven. It is motivated by sadness. It says uh, that Jesus was angry, that he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Here's something beautiful about the gospel, is that Jesus is not hard-hearted towards our hard hearts. Like, Jesus is not hard-hearted towards our hardness of heart. Even though he's angry at the Pharisees, angry at the leaders who are doing this, he's not hard-hearted towards them. There's a grief beneath the anger as well. He grieves for them. And I find this convicting. Do we, do you and I, do we grieve for our enemies? While there's an appropriateness to anger at them, do we grieve for them? Do we lament for the sin that tears God's good world apart? Uh, you know, I, I see this sometimes like, uh, man, on my Twitter feed, I'm like, there's some folks who are really, really angry. And sometimes I have to ask the question, like, the way you talk about it, I just have to wonder, do you actually, could you grieve for them? Like, would you be able to lament for where they're at, these people that maybe you so strongly disagree with? We see in Jesus that he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the condition of those who have made themselves his enemy, who are out to destroy him. Do you lament sin's impact in the world? Throughout the biblical story, it's often God's grief that motivates his anger. Uh, Noah's flood, we're all familiar with that famous story, Uh, and yet the beginning of it, it says that God was grieved at the violence in his world. There was grief in God's heart because of the violence that was tearing apart and destroying and ripping apart the fabric of his humanity until only the kings at the top of the hill with the most power were left. There is often a grief beneath our anger, and I think one of the reasons that I think sometimes we misuse our anger is because we can't connect to the grief underneath. And I think it's appropriate when we find ourselves angry to, to, to try and connect with and go, what, what's underneath this? What, what experience? Is there an experience of loss or something? Because it's, it can be scary to go there because when you tap into that, it can leave you feeling powerless, right? Where the only thing you've got is lament, to lament before the face of God. Are there areas that you might need to connect to the grief underneath your anger? Maybe it's that reputation you lost when someone gossiped about you behind your back. Maybe it's that relationship you lost when your dad walked away. Maybe it's the stability you lost when the company you gave your life to let you go. Maybe it's the ability that you lost when that accident put you in a wheelchair. There's often a grief beneath our anger and I think if we can connect to that loss like Jesus does and grieve for that, it can fuel and empower us to actually use our anger constructively rather than in sheer vengeance. And we see this as the third and final characteristic here of Jesus' anger is that it's creative. Jesus' anger motivates creative action. That Jesus actually allows his anger to fuel creative action that's redemptive in the world. 
<clears throat> he heals the man. When it comes to those he's angry at, he doesn't lecture him or tear him a new one, right? He heals the man, and he lets that action stand on its own. Jesus actually allows the anger to fuel this bringing of resurrection power and new life and deliverance for this man into the world. And that itself becomes the signpost of judgment on those who stand against him. I think the reality is you can be angry at someone and still love them. I love this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. He talked about how it's unloving to leave the oppressor in their oppressive state. We see that here with Jesus. It would be unloving for him to just leave the Pharisees in their condition and ignore this thing. He actually calls it out and deal with it. deals with it. This is an act of love, not only towards the man with the withered hand, but towards the leaders who stand opposed against him. And I think sometimes we don't get involved enough because we're not angry enough, right? Uh, there's a great quote. D.E.H. Whiteley says, the opposite of love is not wrath, it's indifference. Right? The opposite of love is not anger. You can have an anger or wrath motivated by love. The opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. Like if love is caring about the welfare and the well-being of, of the other person, uh, the opposite is indifference, not giving a rip, right? And distancing yourself from them. And I believe we're confronted with the question, like, are you indifferent? Are you indifferent to the plight of people in your life, in your community, in our world. And there's an appropriateness to anger that can fuel creative action. Like if you get angry, and rightly so, at things like sex trafficking or genocide in our world, let that anger fuel and motivate creative action in our world towards addressing it and trying to be part of the solution. If you get rightly angry at harsh words that were spoken to you, don't be indifferent. Let it motivate the creative action of inviting that person out to coffee to put it out on the table and, and seek reconciliation. If you get angry at uh, the political polarization in our society and kind of the war of words going back and forth, uh, let it motivate you to get off Facebook and do something constructive in your local community, right? Like to actually be a part of building the better society that you want to, that your heart longs for. Like when we do that, uh, we're not ignoring the problem, but we're actually creating a signpost of resurrection in the old creation that becomes itself a sign of judgment on the old world. Let your anger fuel creative action. I believe Jesus calls us to uh, not ignore our anger, but rather to use it and to, to stop yelling, but to start building, to stop shouting and to start saving. And this can become like fuel on the fire that propels us into constructive, creative resurrection action in God's world. All right, well, a little interesting side note here as we get ready to wrap up. I love this phrase where Jesus says, uh, stretch out your hand. And it's interesting because there's actually a strong Old Testament backdrop to this phrase. Uh, this phrase, uh, Mark, one of the things that you find when you study Mark is he loves loading uh, stuff in his gospel with allusions that often have like Old Testament backdrop to it that loads it with meaning and imagery. And this phrase similarly, so stretch out your hand, it's a, a phrase that shows up a ton in Exodus. It shows up 16 times in Exodus. This is kind of its foundational part, and it shows up for the plagues on Egypt where God stretches out his hand against Egypt, uh, God calls Moses and Aaron to stretch out his hand against Egypt, and then the plagues come. The paradigmatic moment is when Moses and the people are at the Red Sea and stranded by water on one side and the armies on the other side, and God tells Moses, stretch out your hand 
over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. It becomes from there on throughout the Old Testament the sign of God's judgment on his enemies and his salvation of his people. Psalm 138.7 is an example of this where it says, God, you stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. And now similarly in the story, we see a similar a system of oppression where the Pharisees have become like the new Pharaoh. And these laws and extra, these extra things they have added become like, become like the bricks and the heavy work that are weighing down God's people. And Jesus sees his people where this man is like a representative for his people who are under the burden of this old system of what it's become. And Jesus is out to deliver his people. And so he comes to this man as a representative of God's people. And Jesus now is like Yahweh. And he just calls out to this man where they only see a dude with a withered hand. Jesus sees a new Moses, a vanguard of his coming salvation. And Jesus looks to the man in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of the system of the old world, and he calls out to him and he says, stretch it out. Stretch it out. He invites him to stretch out his hand and it is the signpost of deliverance, of judgment on the old order and entry into the new order of God's new creation. Jesus is using his anger to set people free. This man is not just a recipient of God's mercy. Jesus sees him as an agent of God's mercy. One who is able to approach God in his weakness and Jesus sees this area that others see as an area of disability, and he calls it out as an ability where the God's ability is displayed through him, moving him from an area that was shriveled to a sign of strength. Again, we often want to approach God with our trophies, but he invites us to come to him with our scars. And Jesus is Yahweh who says, I'm going to take those scars, I'm going to take those areas of weakness, and I'm actually going to, in my deliverance with you, in my presence with you and for you, I'm going to make you a vanguard of my salvation for the people. And if you don't believe anything, I, maybe I'm reading too much into this. Uh, it's interesting, you look at Mark 3 as a whole, as the story goes on, as Mark 3 progresses, you've got, it's all modeled on Israel's Exodus story. God calls this man, stretch out your hand like judgment on the old order. In the very next scene, Jesus goes out to the waters, followed by a great multitude and crowd of people following him. And as he gets to the waters, he goes out ahead of his people into the waters, just like Yahweh guiding his people out of Egypt to the Red Sea and going out ahead of them to prepare a way. And then the very next scene is Jesus goes up on the mountain, like Moses going up on the mountain on Mount Sinai. And it's where he calls the 12 disciples to himself, establishing his people just like God did at Mount Sinai. Mark is modeling this as an Exodus scene. What we find here is that Jesus is Yahweh, whose anger at the injustice of the old world can call you and I out like a new Moses, out of the twisting of God's word into a straightened path that leads to life, calling us out from structures of oppression into the freedom of his grace, calling us out of a shriveled existence into wholeness and fullness. We are delivered by the redemptive love of God. And a final note, at the end of this passage, it's interesting to ask, who ends up really working on the Sabbath? Who's really working on the Sabbath? It says, when all this happens, the Pharisees respond, they went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. 
That's working, right? That's working. They begin plotting and planning how to kill Jesus. Jesus speaks four words that bring life, and then they go out and speak many words that bring death. I think Jesus, if you were to ask him, you know, he'd go, this? Like, this isn't working. This is speaking, right? Like, I just said four words, and boom. And yet, you guys are going out and doing all this work to kill. I could do this in my sleep, right? And they go planning a murder, and that takes effort, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated each other. They didn't work together, but here they hate Jesus more. They're united in their hatred and their anger. And a hint, a good rule for what not to do on the Sabbath, don't plot to kill someone, right? (laughs) Like if you're in the mafia, take a day off, right? (laughs) If you're working on a hit on someone, like take a break, you know, take a break. Like... (laughs) The irony is that they get so angry that they break the very thing they're trying to protect. Right? Jesus says, it's the purpose of the Sabbath to save life to kill. Jesus actually fulfills the Sabbath saving life, and they end up breaking it, using it to kill. And Jesus, maybe the best part of the passage for me, Jesus actually empowers them to kill him. He gives them what they need. Because he didn't back down from a fight, he was not afraid of calling out the conflict and addressing and dealing with it, he gives them the very ammo they need to take him out. Right? Uh, there's, I think, another interesting backdrop, illusion from Mark in the scene, where it's in 1 Kings 13, where the prophet, the man of God, comes and he speaks a word against the king, King Jeroboam, the leader in charge. And uh, the king, King Jeroboam, he reaches out, he stretches out his hand and says, seize him. And at the prophet's word, the, the king's hand shrivels and withers. Right? And then he has the prophet pray for him, and the prophet gets away, right? And, and, and his arms are short, and the prophet leaves. Well, now similarly here, Jesus has come like a prophet, bringing the word of God as the man of God to the Pharisees, the leaders who like that king. They want to seize him, only it's that scene in inverse. Like, they have a withered hand. They're not going to be able to get him. And Jesus actually, whoo, in this healing He gives them what they need to seize him, to take him out. God withered the hand of the king in the Old Testament scene so the prophet get away. God restores the hand in this gospel scene so they're able to seize him, take him. Jesus restores the shriveled hand so that they can seize the man of God because he's not afraid of a fight and he's willing to do what's right even if it kills him. And so as we, we're going to come to communion in a moment, as we come to the communion, I want us to come to Jesus who actually fulfills the Sabbath as our salvation. Right? Jesus who actually calls us out, like that new Moses, invites us to bring him our very areas of weakness that he might display his strength through them and even use us, make us, us agents, not only recipients of his grace and mercy and healing, but agents of his grace and mercy and healing in the lives of others. I believe there are some of us here this morning that we have areas of weakness we've kind of been hiding from God, that, uh, and, and God's actually going, those are the very areas I want to use in you to bring healing to others in my world. I feel like there are some of us this morning who have been mistreated, who've been carrying around kind of the walking wounded with ways others have treated us. And the beauty of this morning is, God, God gets angry when he sees our mistreatment. He's with us and for us, and ultimately he's about our deliverance. 
And as we come to the bread and the wine, to the body given and the blood shed, we come to Christ who took, used his anger at the injustice and idolatry of the world and allowed it to destroy him so that he would go down into the grave. And Holy Saturday, that Saturday in the grave, that was his Sabbath rest when he rested so that on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, he would come forth bringing the power of the new creation to restore us and to set us right. Jesus allowed his anger to fuel his creative action in the world, to restore and redeem and make us whole. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you, God, that you care about the gnarly, horrific, cruel, unjust things that we do in our world. Thank you that you are not just kind of apathetic or kind of fluffy and distant and unconcerned, but that you actually enter in. And God, thank you that you show us, though, how to deal with anger by modeling that yourself, God. God, we confess that there are, uh, we've gotten angry for the wrong reasons, God. We often get angry for more for our own self-interest and ego and pride rather than for the welfare and well-being and concern for others. God, we confess that we have often ignored and not been attentive to the grief beneath our anger. God, we've been unwilling to lament or tap into the the loss in order that we might take that powerlessness and bring it before you, the powerful one who is in it with us and for us. And God, we confess that we have often used our anger to fuel destructive action rather than a creative, constructive action in your world. Jesus, we pray that your posture towards anger, God, in and through the power of your spirit would become our posture towards anger, God, and that it would fuel in us as your people resurrection, life-giving action in the world, that we'd be a people marked by your salvation. It's just we thank you uh, that you loved us so much that even when we are your enemies, God, you're willing to fight for us and lay down your life to make us yours. We pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.